Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm Anne McElvoy here from The Economist. It's Monday night on Indivisible, so Anne and I are here to talk with you about the global context of the first hundred days of the Trump administration. And tonight we're going to focus on the thing that Donald Trump has most clearly defined himself against, globalism. Or more specifically for tonight's discussion, migration and those of us whose lives may not fit so neatly inside national borders. Borders and immigration have become staples of our political, our political debate, but we so rarely discuss what that means for people in terms of tangible day-to-day life. We're always at the extremes, victims and villains, overachieving students and dangerous criminals. But what about everything in between? There's a lot of life there. So tonight we want to hear from you about what borders have meant in your actual life and, of course, about deportation for violating those national borders. And given the news of the past week as details of Donald Trump's plan for mass deportation have come out, for the first part of our hour, we want to hear specifically from undocumented residents of the United States. Are you someone who is in this country without legal documentation? If so, are you feeling more vulnerable than you were before President Trump was elected? Or has nothing changed? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Is someone in your family or close community undocumented? Call us up. You can call anonymously if you like. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Two five five, and also tell us your migration story while you're calling. Have how how did you and your family members come to be in the United States without permission in the first place? Eight four four seven four five talk. That's eight four four seven four five eight two five five. You can also tweet us using the hashtag Indivisible Radio. And while folks start calling and tweeting, it's become a Monday night tradition that we also check in with the Economist network of correspondents around the world. And right. That's right, Kai. And here's our first take from The Economist we wanted to share on Indivisible. Last week, the new Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, had, as you know, a very touchy press conference on his visit to Mexico. And in it, he acknowledged new difficulties in the relationship. And I think that was underscored by a cool reception from the Mexican foreign minister. In a relationship filled with vibrant colours, two strong sovereign countries from time to time will have differences. We listen closely and carefully to each other as we respectfully and patiently raised our respective concerns. Well, that was Rex Tillerson. And my colleague David Rennie heads up our Washington bureau. He's also written a lot about the relationship of the US with Mexico. So I gave David a call to get a sense of how he sees the balance of interest between the two countries in these first hundred days of the new Trump era, beyond the frosty rhetoric of that meeting. Mexico is now pointing out that NAFTA trade flows go two way. Mexico 
is a huge buyer of agricultural exports from America. Now there's talk in Mexico of buying Brazilian or imposing tariffs and taxes. Then there's the war against drugs or counterterrorism. Mexico shares a lot of intelligence with America. It lets American agents operate with really amazing freedom. That could change. Lastly, a lot of American jobs are supported by supply chains that cross into Mexico. Those are good American jobs that exist because of NAFTA, not despite it. Well, as you might imagine, Mexico's foreign minister stuck something of a defiant tone in dealing with his visitor, Secretary of State Tillerson. But is that really the story behind the diplomatic scenes? A lot is at stake here in relations with America's southern neighbour. So one way we're looking at it is Mexico is worried because what they heard President Trump tell Canada's leader, Justin Trudeau, on his recent visit was that Canada was going to get away relatively lightly if NAFTA is redrawn. And that puts the heat back firmly on Mexico. So our conclusion at The Economist was that many facets of Trumpism combine into a particularly potent mix and they represent a fundamental ideology of the Trump era. And here's David Rennie, our DC bureau chief, on that. Expect to see trade, security and border issues bundled together in potentially rather dangerous ways in US-Mexican ties. The fundamental change is that for Donald Trump, he rejects the idea that America has an interest in win-win deals with a prosperous, stable Mexico. Trump's instincts to date are just a lot more zero-sum. So what Kai and I would like to know tonight is how this turn of the screw on policy on immigration and towards undocumented migrants affects you or your community and perhaps people you live and work alongside. Do get in touch with us, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And while your calls are coming in, we're joined by Doris Meissner. Doris is Senior Fellow and Director of the US Immigration Policy Programme at the Migration Policy. Institute. And during the Clinton administration, she was Commissioner of the US Immigration and Naturalization Service, and also then later part of the Department of Justice. So Doris, welcome to Indivisible. Thank you. Pleased to be great with you. To have you uh, great to have you with us. The new guidance is that drastically expanding this category of people classified as priorities for removal is really on the table now. That could affect a very large proportion of up to 11 million people in the US without documentation. What is so different, though, about this policy under President Trump when it comes to illegal immigration and deportations? Well, the executive order on what's called interior enforcement is a drastic shift from the policies that the prior administration carried out. What the Trump policy says is that all of the 11 million people who are in the United States without legal status are subject to deportation, with the exception of one group, and that is the young people who have DACA status, the dreamer group. Mm. He's not addressing them. But he's saying that with the exception of that group, no classes of people will be exempt from being deportable. Now, he says also that that effort at deportation must begin with people who are criminals who are convicted of crimes. But the list that is put forward in the executive order and in the guidance that came out 
just a week ago from the Department of Homeland Security creates very broad definitions for criminals. It starts out with people who are convicted of crimes, but it also notes that the next priority would be people who have been charged with crimes, people who have possibly chargeable crimes, people who, in the judgment of of deportation officers, pose a public safety risk. So it opens up the categories of people very widely as compared with current practice, which has been to delineate specifically only the groups that are targeted for deportation, and those groups are very narrowly defined as convicted criminals and people who are a threat to national security. And there's there's clearly a greater elasticity, and I'm sure the Trump administration would say that's absolutely what was intended when they widened this definition. What happens then in the so-called collateral cases? What happens if in the course of targeting someone you find another undocumented person? What is their status under these new rules? Well, their status is that they are subject to deportation because they have violated immigration law by being in the United States without a legal status. So they are subject to removal. Now, in the prior administration, under past practices, ICE officers, deportation officers, were restricted from arresting people who hadn't themselves been convicted of crimes or who hadn't recently crossed the border. The priority had been those convicted of crimes and those recently crossing the border. But now, as deportation officers go about their responsibilities, even when they're looking simply for convicted criminals, when they come across others who are in the category of illegal stay in the United States but haven't committed other crimes than violating the entry into the United States, they're subject to removal. And that's what's a major change. That's what is creating an enormous amount of fear and concern in immigrant communities. Do we know that? At the same time. Just sorry. A little delay across the Atlantic. at at, At the same time, that is what is viewed by many enforcement officers and certainly by the administra- by this new administration as what they call taking the shackles off in terms of enforcement responsibility. And how many people do you think this could affect? We see this 11 million figure bandied about. Some people say that's vastly overstated. But as you've made clear, the language is so wide and there's kind of vagueness about the way these orders have been written that just could lead to a very wide group being targets. Do we have any idea of the scale of that? Well, we've done numbers at the Migration Policy Institute of convicted criminals. It's a number that is in the range of about 800,000. So that's a large number of people, but it's also considerably less than 11 million people. I think that the way that we need to look at this is that it ultimately comes to a question of resources. The agency that's responsible for implementing this directive ICE right now probably can't scale up in numbers 
very much more than had been the case during the peak years of the Obama administration. And let's remember, the Obama administration deported more people, 2.7 million people over the course of its time of eight years, the largest number of any administration historically. So in the course of eight years, at the current resources, most likely ICE would be able to reach that kind of a number. But it will be unpredictable so that the sense of who and the circumstances under which people would be subject to deportation, this order creates an entirely different psychology than the prior practices did. And Mm -hmm. this administration, of course, is talking about considerable resource infusions in order to bring those numbers up. They're talking about 10,000 additional ICE officers. The workforce now that does that work is about 5,000, between 5 and 6,000. So it's a very substantial increase. We'll have to see whether the Congress actually has the appetite to appropriate the money that would be required, and the recruitment and training of those people would take a number of years. We're going to get into the details of that a little bit later in the program as well. And, you know, listeners out there, if we have any folks who are Border Patrol officers or ICE agents, we're going to ask to hear from you as well. Right now, we're taking calls from people who are in the country undocumented, without legal documentation, asking about your story. How has the how has something changed for you since Trump's become president? And how uh, and what has been your migration story in the first place? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I want to bring in some callers here now. Mario in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Hi, Mario. You're on the air. Uh, yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling us up. What's what's your story, Mario? Well, I'm a retired veteran from the Army, and I'm living here right on the outskirts of Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg. And uh, my sister, unfortunately, she extended her visa about uh, 13 years ago, and they've been paying taxes all these years on the hope that the immigration system will have given some kind of leadway by being trying to do the right thing. But uh, now um, they are so fearful to even go out of the outskirts of the Fayetteville area because the police department, they usually put um, uh, checkpoints for driving license or inspection stickers. But there is also a catch. If you catch an illegal immigrant with a driver's license, there's a $240 uh, fee, then let them go, and it goes around and around, and that's a way to uh, uh, collect revenue from the illegal immigrants. Mario, can I ask you, you you said your sister extended her visa. You mean she overstayed her visa past when when she was allowed to stay, right? Yeah, that is correct. And and you said her thought was that they would fix the immigration system. Tell me more about what you mean by that. She So she figured, let me stay uh, around. They'll come up with a way to legalize all of us. Is that the idea? Well, no, because since I'm a, a legal citizen of this country, we thought that it was going to be a quick fix 
for her to get a, uh, a legal status to stay in this country, but we have found different stop points in the process, and once uh, President Obama came in play, she was hoping that he was going to do some kind of reform, or Congress was going to approve a reform, but it was never approved. Thank you for that, Mario. Uh, Doris, what do you think of the story of Mario of Mario's sister um, and and this sort of notion that of of people kind of gaming out for themselves when Washington might do something that will allow them to have uh, different legal options? Well, of course, there's been a lot of talk about immigration reform over many years, beginning really in the current era with President Bush's election in nineteen in 2000, and a, a real commitment for immigration reform, which might have worked at that time, except for the fact that 9-11 happened. might have worked politically, but 9-11 happened, and that, of course, ushered in an entirely new era when it was critical to be thinking about national security, and that's been the lens ever since. So people like the sister that Mario is describing are people who overstayed their visas. That's often not talked about nearly as regularly as people who came across the border with Mexico, but people who overstayed their visas make up probably at least 40% of the population of people in the United States who don't have legal status, and they along with people that came across the southwest border, typically do pay taxes. They, Some of them even own homes. They pay into the Social Security system. And many people who are in those circumstances have felt, given the immigration debate that's gone on, that those behaviors will be a plus for them if a legal status program ever comes into place. But of course, as Mario said, that has not happened politically. Very, very quickly, because we have less than a minute. Are there, can you tick off a couple of places where this is geographically, where this would be most acute? If it's not, you mean, you mean the visa overstays? Yep. Well, visa overstay people are all over the country. We, they tend to come from many more nationalities than those who came across the southwest border. They are often, I mean, they can be Canadians, they can be Irish, they can be Filipino, they can be Korean. They're people who came on on visas, many of them on tourist visas and overstayed, but they've generally overstayed for the same reasons. They want to work in the United States and there are jobs available. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Doris. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. We're talking about border enforcement and the lives of migrants tonight, and we want to hear from undocumented residents of the U.S. right now. Are you feeling more vulnerable than you were before President Trump was elected? 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-TALK. You're listening to Indivisible, and we will be right back after a short break. For so many black people, The Wiz feels like home. home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. 
I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. We're talking about border enforcement and the lives of migrants tonight, and we want to hear from undocumented residents. Are you feeling more vulnerable than you were before President Trump was elected? Or has nothing changed? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And tell us your migration story. How have you and your family come to be in the United States without permission? 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And before we bring in two more guests, I want to go straight to another caller who uh, has been waiting patiently. So Juan in Chicago, you are on the air. Hi, Juan. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling in. What, what's what's your story, Juan? So I'm uh, I am undocumented myself. And like the previous caller's sister, I came here on a tourist visa when I was six years old. So a wall and uh, my family too. Uh, a wall would not have uh, done anything to stop us from being here. Uh, regarding the central question, whether you know it feels more more vulnerable, I would say that uh, absolutely it does. Uh, even though things had calmed down after Trump was elected and he toned down that rhetoric about uh, you know deporting everybody, he took a little, a little bit more chill. What uh, makes it a little bit uh, scary for people like me is the fact that. Sometimes we feel like uh, Trump gets backed into a corner where he's being criticized nonstop over every single thing he does. And it's just like this fear that he's just going to blow up one day and be like, all right, you know what? If you're going to, you know, if you're going to be acting like this, he's going to go nuclear and just like repeal DACA. So I'm, 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 I'm on DACA right now. So, so you're, so to be clear, one, your, your concern is that the sort of, you're poking the bear here, that the, the, that if we continue to hear uh, protests and, and rage from him, that he's going to turn and make things a lot worse for you. Is that, do I understand that? I, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's more than the protests. It's just, um, you know, it's like the, the country's very divided and, I feel I do feel like there is a media bias against him that's not helping. Uh, and, yeah, it's just poking the bear, right? So you're going to make him very angry or something like that, really hurt his ego, and he's going to take it out on the people that he can easily take it out on, which is DACA recipients, because that's an executive order. That's not a law. If tomorrow he wanted to, he could get a pen, sign it, and repeat, sign it off and repeal it, right? Yep. Okay, well, thank you for that, Juan. That's that's an interesting thought, and I want to put that actually to uh, two guests who are going to join us now. We are joined by Debbie Nathan, who is an investigative journalist who has been covering life on the U.S.-Mexico border for decades. She's now an investigator for the ACLU based in Brownsville, Texas. Debbie, welcome. Hi. And Cesar Vargas, who is co-director of the Dream Action Coalition and the first undocumented attorney in New York. He's been a leader in what's been called the Dreamer Movement and is himself enrolled in the Obama-era program, Deferred Action for Childhood Rivals, which is what Juan was just talking about for himself. Uh, and it exempts a select group of undocumented people from deportation. Cesar, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Cesar, can I just immediately put to you what Juan just told us uh, uh, about his feeling that he's, he, he's worried that, that, that we're all poking the bear by, by, by complaining about Donald Trump and that he might turn on people like him? 
Well, right now, the, there's no question that there is a climate of fear that's taking place. Uh, and there's two ways to look at this. One, there is definitely the divisive rhetoric that the president has deployed to talk about immigration, talk about immigrants, talk about, you know, essentially American families where many of many immigrant families are mixed status families, either their spouses are U.S. citizens or children are U.S. citizens, and even veterans who have loved ones who are undocumented uh, and veterans who are, the, are themselves possible to deportation. So we have a very complicated aspect from that from that point of view. The other component that's the more complex that we are seeing this develop now is that many of these rates, uh, these so-called rates, or many of these deportations that we have been seeing over the past few weeks, uh, many of them were issued under the Obama administration. And many of this, you know, ICE Immigration Customs Enforcement has rightfully, you know, to some extent said that, you know, this is something that they have already done before, which is true. They did this aggressively during the Obama administration. Now, we are seeing a ramped-up enforcement that that we're seeing where people are getting picked up in the courthouse, like in Texas, where we're seeing dreamers without without any type of criminal records being detained in, in uh, Washington state. So, you know, there is a complexity at this point we don't know. But what is what I do agree with Juan is that there is a genuine sense of of concern, and even myself, my you know my mother who's undocumented as well, and you know she always has to check checks on me now so often. I have to check on my mother, so that is something that's really happening right now. Cesar, let me based on what you were just saying, let me play a clip for 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 you guys. Uh, this is. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer explaining the the new guidance last week uh, and, and and presumably what the White House sees as different from the Obama era. So the president wanted to take the shackles off um, individuals in these agencies and say, you have a mission. There are laws that need to be followed. You should do your mission and follow the law. So, Debbie, what does that look like on the ground in a place like Brownsville, Texas, when they, quote, take the shackles off ICE and Border Patrol agents? What does that actually mean in people's lives? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's been an incredible amount of harsh enforcement down here for years. It goes back even before the Obama administration. Um, police agencies have special funds that they get from the feds to cooperate with, you know, the Border Patrol under the rubric of fighting crime, but often they pretextually stop people and for, you know, broken taillights and they end up handing them to the Border Patrol. So, you know, for a long time, people have lived with fear down here on the border. But since the election, um, the rhetoric, I think the rhetoric is is very, not just galling to people, but really frightening to people. And um, it, it just people are, I mean, people are demoralized and they're scared. Um, they're brave, too. There are a lot of activists here on the border who, you know, go to the legislature in Texas and try to keep these things from happening. But, I mean, kids are coming home now from school. Again, you know, these are mixed family, mixed status families, um, as Mr. Vargas said. And they come home from school and the first thing they do is run into the house to see if their mother is still there. And the mothers are not going out to buy food at the grocery stores because they're worried that they're going to be picked up. Uh, they don't take the kids for well children exams at the doctor. You know, they try to figure out if the kid is sick or just has a well exam. I mean, people are people are in hiding um, out in areas that, I mean, I live in a, in a county that's about 9 or 10 percent undocumented. 
And it's a county where 91% of the people are Mexican, Mexican-American. So um, the rhetoric, I mean, I've witnessed some of this rhetoric myself, and it actually goes back to before the election. I even heard from people back in September who'd been picked up by Border Patrol that they were taunting them about um, Donald Trump. I was at they the being Nuevo- the Border Patrol agents. Yeah, Border Patrol agents taunting them. Um, one woman said that um, these agents said to her, so you know who the duck is? And she's like, what? What do you mean? And I mean, this is in Spanish and English. She speaks Spanish. They speak English. But she's half understanding the duck. No, You know who the duck is? Uh, no. You know, like Donald, like the duck, and they're just going on and on. And then they finally say to her, you'll know in November. And I heard Border Patrol agents at the bridge in Laredo a few weeks ago um, mocking people and again doing these little Donald Trump riffs. I mean, there, there just seems to be this this sort of people, you know, kids were bullied the day after the election, immediately after the election, little kids were bullied down here, as they were in many, many places throughout the United States. But there is just a tremendous amount of anxiety here and fear, and it's very painful, um, really painful to see. I came down to work here a few months ago, two days before the election, thinking, you know, that things would be pretty much like Obama. I mean, it would sort of, you know, schlep along. And um, it is now... Just, just you know, it's very frightening down here. Um, and this is a community. It's a, it's a really nice day-to-day community. There are millions of people living on the border from California to, to uh, the Gulf of Mexico on the southern border. Millions of people are going through this. We'll cut, I want to come back to that, that community idea here in a bit. But first, let's get some callers in. Uh, let's go to Orlando in Norcross, Georgia. Orlando, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Hi, um, it's nice to be with you. Nice to have you. Um, hi, um, yeah, I am also on DACA, like a lot of the callers we've had so far. Um, I was uh, brought, snuck in illegally as a child, um, as a baby, as an infant. I was only six months old. Um, my uh, family used had a friend in Mexico who also had a child who was illegal, who was born in the United States, but uh, they used his documents to get me over the the border. Um, but I actually wasn't aware of that until I was uh, 15 years old. Um, I sat my mom down and I told her I was ready to try to get a learner's, and she told me uh, that that opportunity would not be available to me because of my status. Mm. And And... Cesar, can I get you to sort of chime in with Orlando here on this? Because you also have uh, this uh, personal family story of this nature about this sort of learning your status thing. That yeah, is... no. yeah no, absolutely. And, you know, this is, you know, this is something that, you know, myself, you know, from my, when I was seeing all my friends applying to college and trying to, you know, get the driver's license and all of a sudden, you know, myself saying, well, you know, I need to do all this and, hitting the reality that that was not going to be possible. And when my teeth, one of my guidance counselors said that I couldn't go to college because I was going to be, because I was quote unquote illegal back then. And, and almost getting kicked out of college because they found out that I was undocumented. So that experience is, is definitely there that we are seeing this. But one of the, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, and, you know, I guess this is where the, where the United States, uh, this nation has, 
it really turn its back on its own history. And, you know, we need to remind ourselves that this history of Haitian immigrants has been, you know, throughout history. And not only that, there's not, you know, it's hypocritical to say that, oh, you know, my parents, my grandparents came here, did it the right way. Well, no, that is inaccurate and that is false because, one, the system that we have now is very different than we had before. Two, uh, you know, where I'm talking with my congressman, Republican congressman here in New York City, where he said, you know what, my great-great-grandfather was an undocumented Irish immigrant. And that's how he came to, to, to New York City. And I understand that this, you know, whole pattern that immigrants come here, you know, there's, I think we need to remind ourselves, this is what the president needs to remind himself and the nation, that this is not who Geza, we are. can I just, uh, you just said something that, that chimed with, with uh, me looking at this from the European perspective. And I think we sometimes forget you know, that, that a lot of these movements in varying degrees are happening across the world and in different countries. And if you look at the fact that even Germany that's taken a lot of refugees, a million refugees, but the payoff as far as Angela Merkel is concerned is she feels she needs to step up deportations. In Britain, after we're now in the process of leaving the European Union, we've got this question about who's going to stay and who's going to go. And it could really be that people perhaps are coming to a view that borders have been too open, too malleable. Now, I know just you're, you're, you've made very clear that you don't welcome that. You said it was hypocritical, a you know, really strong word. But it could be that there is a movement afoot where many people don't take that view. And therefore, whether they like to be seen to say it or not, they kind of agree that you should be pushing some more people out than were pushed out before. What do you make of that? Well, yeah, you know, and I think this is, you know, this is where we are in this political climate now where, you know, uh, a debate is being engaged of one, you know, true facts and alternative facts, as as uh, the president's uh, White House counsel has been saying. Uh, but most important, I think what all of your callers and all of uh, myself is about telling our stories, because we can debate statistics, we can debate sometimes facts, but we can never debate our individual stories. And here, where I live and where I have seen in small towns, including, you know, deep south in Alabama, when we tell our stories, people get to know not just the, the person, the immigrant, but they get to know my neighbor, my neighbor who plays with my kids, or my neighbor who is going out with my daughter, or the guy who's, you know, who, who's, uh, you know, who's his attorney. So, you know, I think that's what fundamental we need to do that. You know, within this harsh political climate of who should we let in and who we should kick out, we, what we need to really understand is who we are. And for myself, I tell my story very often because I want to make sure that people can know that, one, you know, undocumented immigrants are here. We're your neighbors. But also, you know, we are your not only your people who cut your grass, but we are your attorneys, your doctors, your engineers, your teachers, your professors. And I think that is what this nation is all about, that despite this rhetoric, despite this divisiveness, you know, we are still very, very much within our immigrant stories that so we're going to tell this story in the next few decades. Let me let me hop in here and get get, get some of those very stories in. Let's go to um, Pedro in Atlanta, Georgia. Pedro, welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air. Thank you very much. Uh, well, it's just the uh, situation is so aggravated for for everybody in, in my situation. Uh, I'm not the first one, nor the last one either. And uh, we feel so sad uh, that uh, 
that situation is just uh, increasing the hatred among the so many people that uh, we thought that uh, they were accepting us in a good uh, manner. Mm. And, and um, sorry, go ahead. Yes. And so, and so, you feel like things have worsened since yeah, President Trump. Sure. And how has that shown up? Like, in your life, what 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 has happened to you that you've seen, or, or in your community where, that you've seen where it, where it's gotten worse? I mean, we're we're afraid to to go out uh, more often that we when it, that we need to. I mean, we need to go out to to work. Uh, we need to go out to to do groceries. We need to go out to 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 leave the kids on the the school bus uh, stop and. Uh, we just need to be just looking on, over the, our shoulders to to be aware of our surroundings uh, more than uh, before, so, and that's uh, very just very stressing. Thank you for that, Pedro. That's some of the fear that uh, that Debbie was talking about. Quickly, before we go to the break, let's have another caller, Kate in Philadelphia. Kate, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Katya. Katya, Katya I apologize. We just have a couple of minutes, Katya. Quickly, what, what is your story? I just uh, wanted to talk that about my partner. Um, he's undocumented. He's been in this country for over t- uh, 10 years. And, yes, there has been fear um, every day. You know, we're always looking online for news, like, what's going on with the Trump? Did, he, did the Trump sign anything? Um, he unfortunately he has two jobs and he has to he works uh, he drives and he does not have a driver's license and he has changed his behavior he'll take different routes just to avoid potential checkpoints um, and of course whenever I'm able to drive I will but the fear is there um, I uh, suffer from chronic illness and he's been my financial support as well for over seven years so the thought of him being deported I mean it's just it, it it's it's a, a, a big fear that we, we have in my family as well. I have friends as well that are undocumented. And when Trump won that election, the number one thing we all felt was this country doesn't want us. Even if we are citizens, that's the, the large sentiment we, we felt. This country does not want us here. Katya, thank you for that remark uh, and, and for that testimony. We're going to have to take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to talk to both Debbie and Cesar a little more about what something Katya said there in terms of her mixed status family and what that means. You can call us up at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Indivisible. Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I am Kai Wright. And I'm Anne McElvoy from The Economist. We're talking with journalist and ACLU investigator Debbie Nathan and immigrant rights advocate Cesar Vargas about 
borders and deportation and life in the Trump era for people who are in the country undocumented. And uh, I want to just throw out something that our last caller before the break, Katya, said about she is she was somebody who uh, is herself a citizen, I believe, and married to someone who is undocumented. His deportation would mean things for her financial life as as he's her primary earner. Debbie, this idea of there's so much of our political debate about immigrants is, so, is is rooted in this idea that there are good immigrants and there are bad immigrants. There are people who we want to keep and there are people who are a burden to us and need to go. And I wonder about what that looks like from a real life perspective inside people's families. I, I you know, I, I think about yeah. my own family and friends. What, what do you think about that? Well, you know, the thing that really impressed me, that really pained me about Katya was where she said, I mean, she's, she's, not illegal, right? She's not undocumented. Her partner is, and yet she said she felt rejected. And when so, you know, so many people are in the same situation as she is. They have um, relatives who are documented. Undocumented people have relatives who are documented. They have U.S. citizen children. You know, I I pulled out my calculator the other day and I um, divided the population of the United States, you know, it did the, in the number of undocumented people that could be deported 11 million. What you get when you do that is one in 29 people. If you can imagine one in 29 people disappearing in this country. And if you add all the people that they're, they love and that live with them, you get, I don't know. I mean, probably, you know, one in, 15 or 20, it's it's just like you get this enormous disappearance of people like the rapture or something. But um, what's even worse to me, and I see this here, is that feeling that Katya expressed among American children whose parents, they're worried that their parents are going to be deported and they feel unwanted. They feel as unwanted as their parents do. Um, I interviewed this lovely woman who has two children who are American, they're native born Americans, and she's undocumented. She is a community volunteer. She organizes in her neighborhood to get street lights. Um, she volunteers in her children's school several hours a week. And her little five year old daughter said to her, in, I'll, I'll say it in Spanish and translate it, it was very interesting. She said, um, Mommy, el presidente Trump no me quiere porque soy brown, which means President Trump doesn't love me because I'm brown. And the mother was said, why did she say brown in English? I mean, it was just so intense mm. because, you know, and then she said to her father, he doesn't love you. He, she said, he loves you even less than he loves me, or he dislikes you even more than he dislikes me because you're darker than I am. Mm. Now, this is, a, this is a U.S. born child whose mother has already started to fill out a power of attorney to give custody to somebody else in case she gets deported. Those children will stay here if she gets deported. They are going to grow up, a generation of children are going to grow up into adults feeling that they don't belong here, and yet they're U.S. citizens. And that is not only painful, it's frightening. But let me ask both of you, what what do you say to otherwise well-meaning people who – who say, well, okay, yeah, you know, that's a sad story, but there are as there are criminals and there are terrorists and there are real threats out there and some of them are in our communities and they've got to be deported and we've got to have a system for that. I mean, wh- wh- what well, is... Well, uh, yeah, can I answer that? Yeah, hop in. Okay. Um, 
I mean, first of all, all the statistics show that undocumented people have a lower crime rate than other people, and immigrants have a lower crime rate than people who aren't immigrants. But beyond that, I mean, people come over here and they contribute to the cultural, economic, and every other aspect of life in this country. And just like any other group of people, immigrants and undocumented people have their good people and they have their people who make their mistake or do their bad thing. And that's not any different from anybody, from any other group, you know, a citizen group in this country. There's no difference. I mean, if anything, there's less crime. So I, I find that this is kind of a bugabear, you know. This Debbie, idea can I that, just, just yeah. but, but in, in a question here, you know, I mean, I'm sort of looking at the the picture that, that we're seeing if we're covering this also in our US section, but say if we're writing from Europe or from Southern Europe and those big tensions that you've seen with migration streams in Europe. And I'm, I'm just suggesting that people don't want on the whole might not be at all comfortable with the idea as you've suggested that 11 million people disappear or are pushed out. And they would also feel you know, sorry for some of the people that we've heard tonight, and particularly your, your last story there about the child, which is just awful, it's just so affecting. But what they think is the numbers need to come down. Is that a fair reflection? And if it is a fair reflection of some parts of public um, opinion, and they can't all be the victims well, of fake I, news, I, I just, what do I we just, do about that? How do yeah, we approach that subject? I just read a poll, and I'm sorry I can't tell you where this poll comes from. You know, it was in a very respectable publication, and I read a <laughs> I lot. We're going to take you on trust. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so this poll said that um, most Americans don't think that immigration is a huge problem. And in fact, immigration was, it was much more intense, undocumented immigration was much more intense 10 years ago. And then it levels out, it flattened, and actually then um, undocumented immigration went to below zero. You know, the in other words, the, the net in migration uh, went to below what it had been. And it's just flattened out and it's far less than it was 10 years ago. And when you, when you poll Americans, they actually say that they don't consider this to be a huge problem. Now, of course, there is this, this segment of the population who supported Trump who are all up in arms about it. But again, you know, that is a minority a big segment of the population because he is the president. Well, I'm, you know, we're talking about how people feel. So I'm no. trying to talk here about the people in the country. So, so let's, let's get to some more of the folks in the country here. I, I want to bring in Maka from Connecticut. Maka, hello. You're, you're on the air. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, I've been in this country uh, um, for uh, about uh, 25 years. About 25 years. I uh, overstayed my uh, my visa, and uh, due to the fact that uh, um, I couldn't uh, uh, get a job with a document, um, started my uh, own business. I had to learn uh, uh, a skill, uh, graphic design. I started my own business. And uh, when I came to this country, I had to learn almost everything. Um, I learned the language. I couldn't speak English. I learned the language, uh, learned the culture, uh, learned about the system. So it's basically uh, everything that I know, everything that I am, uh, been in this country. And uh, until uh, Trump became president, uh, I was so, I mean, so comfortable uh, in this country. And um, when uh, Trump became president, uh, things changed. 
suddenly uh, you feel like nothing. Uh, you feel like a piece of, I don't know, uh, dirt, junk, and uh, you feel trapped and trapped like an, 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 an animal. Uh, there's so much, so much frustration. Okay, and, can uh, I, can I, I ask? Thought, and I still believe that uh, American people are the most decent people on earth. Wonderful people. But unfortunately, uh, when you are in a situation like, uh, you know, facing what Trump is doing and the people supporting him, uh, sometimes you start doubting. But, uh, you know, uh, deep inside, I, I still believe there is hope that something, uh, something will happen. Maka, can I ask, what, have you changed anything in your life? Is, you know, you felt per- perfectly comfortable Absolutely for 25 everything. years. everything. Every time you go out, you have to, you know, look, uh, you know, uh, behind and ahead and make sure that uh, you don't fall into a checkpoint. Uh, every time you, even, even meeting a police on the road, I mean, you have the feeling that at any moment, uh, you won't be able to come back home or be with your family. Uh, it's, it's so strange. And, and now there's one thing, one thing very important that I would like to say. You see, uh, when the most important thing that we live with is hope, hope for a better tomorrow, hope for a, a, better, a better future. So you work your life, you do everything around that, that you know, tomorrow will be better. You'll be able, able to accomplish this and do that. But in this situation, you cannot even plan tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So you're kind of stuck. It's even worse than being in a refugee camp. Because at least over there they have hope that someday there will be somewhere it will be better. But here, suddenly you feel like your future, your hope is behind you. Okay, well, Maka, thank you for that. Thanks for calling and let us get, telling us about your experience. I want to add a tweet from, Christ, from Christopher who asked, this is sort of along the lines of what Anne was pursuing, there has been no mention of the fact that all these illegal immigrants are breaking the law. Why? So, Cesar, can you speak to that, this idea that, well, it's a question of law and order. We're a country of laws. Uh, Maka and yourself and anyone else who's here undocumented, they're breaking the law, and it's that simple. And, and, you know, I think that's exactly the point of why we're having this discussion immigration. You know, there's no dispute that, you know, our, as a nation, we should use our power to keep us safe from those that threaten us harm. No question about that. But should we, should we use that power and our taxes to detain and incarcerate and a mother who is working just to give their, their sons a better life. You know, so those are the questions that we need to really talk about. And yeah, it is unfair for people who are waiting, who have been waiting, you know, years, years to try to come here to the U.S. and also, but it's also unfair for people to, who have come here, risk their lives. My mother risked her life to give me a better life. And I can tell you this, if it was hard choice to, go through the process and actually come here with a visa and a plane? No question about it, of course. But we have a broken immigration system that does not allow people to come, quote-unquote, legally. There is no system at this point which gives people the channels to apply to a visa. And, you know, to, to those people who say, well, you know, Donald Trump, you know, is doing the right thing because, you know, he has, you know, he was voted in to crack down on immigration. You know, that is wrong because exit polls show that right after the election, 70% of people 
were primarily focused with the economy. You know, it was like 10, 20 percent of it were actually focused on immigration. And for myself, working for the, for the Bernie Sanders campaign, I traveled to almost 41 states where I saw people, Republicans, Democrats, independents, you name it, Green Party, who their main priority was like, we need to focus on the economy. And frankly, Donald Trump played that messaging very well. And it, but it wasn't about immigration. It wasn't about, oh, we need to crack down immigration. Oh, we need to do this. That was secondary. And and I think that's the main important that we need to focus, that, yes, we are a nation of laws, but we're also a nation of just and pragmatic laws. You know, we, don't, we cannot just function under a system that's almost 30, 40 years old. It's like still having a black and white television. No one has. So, you know, I think that's what we need to understand when we're discussing this issue in a very, very humane way, but also in a very, as legal-wise, we need to really understand that, no, we don't have an immigration system that's working well for people that don't, that doesn't allow people to come the right way, quote-unquote. And I think that is exactly what we need to focus on when we're discussing this issue. And, and there's going to be, we've talked a lot about undocumented immigration, but there is uh, a, a significant proposals before Congress that we are expecting about how to change the legal immigration system and that would make it more difficult for families uh, to come in. That is one of the proposals. Let, let, let me get uh, another caller in here, Ninfa in Brownsville, Texas. Ninfa, hello. You're on the air. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thanks for calling in. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, hi, David. <laughs> um, I'm calling yeah. from Brownsville, Texas. I'm here illegally for 20 years. Um, I came here like other people, you know, to the American dream. I came here because other people brought me here um, for their own gain, you know, to put me to work for them and no pain and nothing. So somebody rescued me from that. And living in fear, it's the most um, terrifying thing. And especially here, there's a lot of tension. People don't know what's going to happen. If it's true, they're going to deport people or not. And when Trump does one election, the, the, my daughter is the one that was scared, not me. Because... I know by being here, I brought the law. That's one thing. But other than that, I haven't done anything illegal. I heard so, your daughter in the background there. How old is she? Say that again? I thought I heard your daughter in the background there. How, how, how old is she? Yes, my daughter. Uh, she knows I'm on the radio, and she said, you know, tell her mom. Tell her mom. She's clearly uh, going to be a great contributor in, in a few years. You, one of the things that struck me just um, you know, just listening to to you talking now and to many of our callers is this theme of how many people expected borders to be porous or, or malleable across time. And they, they built life chances and life expectations and their hopes on that. And it does seem that this is perhaps a foundation of, of borders, Kai, that we've, we've thought of as being much more solid, in fact, than, than it is, because if we look at the foundation of the European Union, it was very much about being able to move, being able to travel between countries. You know, I thought all of that was uh, over when the Berlin Wall fell, that I would be able to go anywhere in, in Europe. It wouldn't be a problem. And from what we're hearing, and people very much at, at the sharp and the sore end of it on the show tonight in America, but also in Europe, 
I think the times are changing. The borders are just the, the culture around border has has changed dramatically as well. And I, I and I you've seen that, Debbie, over the years of covering the border. Yeah. Um, when I first was living on the border in the 70s and 80s, the border was very, very porous. People went back and forth. Um, when immigration was discussed, especially in the 80s, there was a sense that something was going to happen that was good. In fact, in 1987, the Simpson-Rodino bill was enacted, and um, that legalized millions of people. And we haven't had a legalization in a generation. So we have a whole bunch of young people now who have been born here and have taken their place, you know, as Mexican-Americans. Um, but now we have a whole bunch of people who are young adults who are not legal. And it just feels like it, it feels like um, a cauldron, you know, that's boiling. I mean, it just feels like there's something that needs to be done. There's a generation of people who are culturally Americans, you know, who need to take their place as citizens. The border itself um, has become very fraught and doesn't feel easy to cross back and forth the way it used to. Um, 9-11 is responsible for a lot of that. So it's, again, you know, for someone who loves the border, as I do, um, it's another painful thing to see these borders getting harder and harder and more shut and harsher. And I think everyone down here feels that on both sides. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. We're running out of time. But uh, I want to thank Debbie Nathan, investigative journalist and uh, investigator for ACLU, for joining us. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. And Cesar Vargas, who is with the Dream Action Coalition um, and, a, uh, and, and an undocumented immigrant himself and lawyer here in New York. Uh, thank you for joining us, Cesar. You've been listening to Indivisible. This is Public Radio's National Conversation, uh, airing four nights a week for the first hundred days of the new administration. Tomorrow night, WNYC's Brian Lehrer will be hosting NPR special coverage before President Trump's address to joint address to a joint session of Congress. He'll be taking calls, uh, and the phones will be open as usual. So call us up. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm Emma McElvoy, and we will talk to you next week. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.